You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Today we continue in our August sermon series exploring Paul's letter to the church in Rome, a letter where Paul speaks to the very heart of the matter about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if that is true for the whole letter, then our passage today set into that context, we might call it the heartbeat of the letter to the church in Rome. For it is here where we see Paul subtly but surely shift, shift from teaching about Jesus Christ to testifying about Jesus Christ. Indeed, many scholars look at this particular passage from Romans chapter 8 and they say if you look at, look at it within the context of the whole, you will find that everything before Romans 8 leads up to it and everything after grows out from it. And so, friends, we are invited now to listen once more for a word from God as we hear these heartbeat verses from Romans chapter 8. Paul writes to the church saying, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn then? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? As it is written, Paul continues, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, he concludes, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. I am convinced, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Good and gracious God, your love stretches far beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Indeed, oh God, your love is so big that there is nowhere we can be where we are outside of it. And so, God, we pray that that love would envelop us. We pray that it would draw near to us, as near to us as the heart that beats in our chest. We pray that through the spirit of that love, 
you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight and use them to your glory. Oh God, we pray these things for we know that with you and you alone they are possible. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a bit of dire family lore about my grandmother who always loved to tell the story about how when her father, my great grandfather, known as Pops, would pray before family gatherings, especially during occasions like Thanksgiving, everyone would circle up and join hands and Pops would start praying. And then Pops would keep praying. And then Pops would still be praying. Two, three, four minutes in, which is like years in prayer time, <laughs> Pops would finally amen. And my grandmother, who we affectionately called Bobby, would quip to Pops, Pops, you done did quit praying and got to preaching. Now, I don't know if Paul was praying as he wrote these verses, but what I do know is Paul gets to preach in here. And if ever there was preaching or a preacher worth paying attention to, worth listening to, it is this one and this passage. Right, because here we do detect this change where Paul moves suddenly from those previous chapters leading up to this chapter. He moves from telling us what it is he believes to now testifying to us about what he knows. There's a shift here. This shift where Paul shifts from saying the right words to suddenly proclaiming what is really on his heart. It is in these verses where Paul stops teaching us about all the things he knows to be true about Jesus and starts preaching to us. For I am convinced, he says. If you ever hear a preacher say those words, for I am convinced, and you can tell that they actually mean it, you know they've stopped teaching and they've started preaching. Buckle your seatbelt. For I am convinced, Paul tells us. When was the last time you were convinced about something? You know, by its very nature, conviction can be a dangerous, slippery slope. Because when we are convinced about something, what that usually means is we have moved on to only seeking or accepting information that just validates what we already think. It doesn't take much imagination to understand how that can at times be problematic. Right? We become convinced about all sorts of things. We become convinced on Saturday mornings that our team is going to win. Or if you're a long-suffering Vanderbilt fan like me, you wake up and you're convinced your team has already lost. <laughs> right? We become convinced that we are better suited than another person, better suited for a promotion or a position or recognition. And it's only a stone's throw from that conviction to become convinced that we are actually better than another person. It's easy for us to see how our convictions can sometimes get us into trouble. We become convinced that someone is who they say they are despite all the facts to the contrary. 
we become convinced that there's no way out, that nothing will ever be different. But you know, Paul's conviction here feels a little different to me. Because here it feels like what Paul is convicted of is that not a single one of the powers, the earthly powers in our everyday lives, those powers that vie for our allegiance, that threaten to control us, those powers with names like greed and lust and envy and prejudice and disease, Paul is convicted here that not a single one of those earthly powers is more powerful than God and God's power. And the sole source of this unshakable conviction for Paul is the empty tomb. It's really interesting to me that right in the middle of these verses from the end of Romans 8, Paul tucks in that 44th Psalm. You know, I admitted to you all on the first Sunday we started this series two weeks ago that I've often avoided Paul. I've often avoided his teaching and just his stories because they often confound me a good bit. And this is a great example. Right there in the middle, Paul slips in, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are as accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. What? It's a quote that Paul's slipping in there from the 44th Psalm. And as I looked at it harder this week, I began to wonder if Paul didn't put it there because he knew that his audience, those ancient Jewish and Christian people there in the church in Rome, I wonder if he didn't know that his audience would immediately know the rest of that psalm. The 44th Psalm is a psalm of lament. That's the part we just read, but it's also a prayer for help. The 44th Psalm ends this way. Paul, or the psalmist rather, cries out to God, Oh God, rise up and come to our help. Redeem us, O God, for the sake of your steadfast love. I think Paul is trying to communicate to the Romans and to us that in Jesus Christ, remember he's had this encounter with the risen Christ. It's that story from the book of Acts that causes Paul to just do a complete 180. He goes from being a persecutor of the Christians to being one of their leaders. Something fundamentally impactful happens in Paul's encounter with the risen Christ. It's as if in that encounter, Paul has come to understand that in Jesus Christ, God has answered that prayer. Because in the risen Christ, the love that Paul encounters is not a controlling love or a manipulative love or a distant love. Rather, the love that Paul encounters in the risen Christ is this sacrificial, self-emptying, forgiving, death-defying kind of love. Right? It's this love that is so for us. I love that line. If Christ is for us, who is against us? In the risen Christ, Paul has encountered this love that is so for us that there is literally nothing we can do to separate ourselves from it. I was thinking back this last week on my introduction to homiletics. That's the fancy seminary word for preaching. The introduction to preaching class that all of us in the Uh, Chancel and and other places who have gone to seminary took likely at one point. 
Right, it's this class where you spend the first half of the semester reading all these books and it's sort of building up to the moment about halfway through the semester where the students take their first opportunity to preach from a pulpit. And all of us students, we spend weeks preparing for this sermon, right? We practice it for hours the night beforehand in the mirror. We're just sure that we have the sermon that that professor is going to talk about for years going forward. Wow. Man, I remember the first time I heard him preach. I almost just hung it up and gave him the teaching spot. But of course, the day comes and you're a bundle of nerves and you climb into the pulpit of that chapel and right from the get-go, you start stumbling over your words, right? You're forgetting entire paragraphs that you had spent hours crafting. A few minutes in, both the people in the pews and the preacher in the pulpit are all praying for it to end soon. I remember from that first time preaching in the chapel there on Columbia Seminary, the professor listened to the poor soul who had to go first, and when he or she finished, he said to him, all right, stay where you are, don't move. And he got up out of his seat, and he slowly walked forward, and he reached over the front of the pulpit, and he took their papers. He took their manuscript. And he went and he walked back down and he sat down. He said, you know, Alan, I really, uh, I love that story or that point you made halfway through. I want you to tell me that same story without your manuscript. And you know, I've never gone uh, hang gliding in the Swiss Alps. (laughs) But I imagine that the terror all of us felt in that moment is not unlike the terror you probably feel taking that first step for the first time off a sheer cliff face. But what was amazing about that exercise is it forced you to gather yourself and to look inwards, right? To climb into your own heart and ask yourself, what is it? What is it I'm really trying to stay here? What is that cord of the good news that this story has plucked in my heart? And then to just say it. And what you find when you take that step and you begin to tell that story is that instead of falling, what you experience is freedom. You look out as you just tell what's on your heart and you suddenly notice that in the faces looking back at you, That same cord has been plucked in the hearts of those who are out in the pews. You know, more than anywhere else in all of Paul's writings, Romans 8 feels to me like the place where Paul sets his manuscript aside. And he climbs into his own heart and he just tells us the good news. And the good news, according to Paul, is that there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is no hurt or anguish. There is no illness. There is no hospital room. There is no depth of despair or height of joy, even standing at the edge of the grave. There is nothing Paul says, 
that can separate us from God's love. Doesn't it feel a bit like Paul is just stepping off that cliff, falling into freedom and reaching back and inviting all of us to do the same? It's funny, I uh, called my dad this week to fact check that story about Pops, make sure I was remembering it correctly. And he started sharing with me because Pops died when I was an infant, practically a newborn, so I never knew him. I've only known him through story. My dad said, you know, it's the most amazing thing because your Pops didn't really go to church that much for a lot of his adult life. But when he would stand in that circle and you'd join hands and he'd start praying, there was something there. Now, my dad didn't use this language, but just in the weight of his own words and sharing about Pops, it was almost as if he was trying to say, when Pops got to preaching, it was almost like the risen Christ himself was right there in the circle with us. But I know what y'all will say. There Alan goes again, quit praying, and got to preaching. So I guess all there is left to say is amen. Amen.